Has being a mama changed you? I know it surely shifted my DNA. It isn't just the body changes, the baby brain, that overwhelming sense of responsibility, or even the hormone cocktail. It's so much more than all that. The big question starts to linger inside all of us, especially as our kids gain some of their own independence, and then they start going to school. That inner question, not even the busyness can cloud it out. What's my purpose now? Who am I that's not my kids? Who you used to be may be a vanishing memory. Who you now want to be can often be a foggy mist that you can't quite clarify. Surely who I am now is more than a preparer of snacks and a mom taxi. If you're ready to get in the game of your own life again, then I am ready for you. I've taken my neuroscience degree, mixed it with a dose of professional sport, marinated it in NLP certifications and lots of business and personal coaching to design The Awakened Mama, a six-week program to help mamas get back into the game. Imagine moving your really good idea into a living, breathing reality. Reconnect with your purpose. I know it can be hard to do it all on your own. Work with me and together we'll get momentum into your ideas to awaken your dormant dreams. Go to In The Game Coaching to find out more. That's I-N-T-H-E-G-A-M-E-C-O-A-C-H-I-N-G.com to find out more. And P.S. If you know a mama who could really use this lift, why not awaken the good Samaritan within you and pass on this nugget of goodwill? She will surely love you for it. Welcome to the newly cleansed and refreshed in the game podcast where we invite you to transform your dreams into reality every week we aim to touch move and inspire you to new possibilities for your life my name is sarah maxwell and is it really time for me to now intro my own show heck no bring in the aussie talent to get it done With their groundbreaking first season as The Nat and Sarah Show, the foundation has been laid for a life of manifesting your dreams. Join us as we delve into the nuts and bolts of what it really takes to bring those dream boards into reality. It's time to dust off your dreams and get back in the game of life. Are you a member of the community? Head to Facebook and search In The Game Podcast to download your three-step journal to begin the workshop-style teachings and gain exclusive access to your hosts and featured guests. Get ready to take action on your possibility. Today, we continue the conversation with a man who was awarded the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for Engineering. Professor James Trevelyan from Perth is well known for his pioneering research on sheep shearing robots from 1975 to 1993 at the University of Western Australia, where he was awarded many international engineering and robotic awards. He then moved into research of landmine clearing methods, where he made a big impact in countries like Afghanistan, Cambodia, the Balkans, and many African countries. He then took on schools in Islamabad, where together with his father-in-law, they architected toilet access for young kids. And now, as Western Australian of the Year, at the ripe age of 65, he founded Close Comfort, where he and his students engineered a personal air conditioning unit, which has been made affordable for countries such as Pakistan, 
which aligns with his belief that safe respite from dangerous heat conditions should be a basic human right. In 2013, his TED Talk titled Ending Poverty, What Engineers Do or What Engineers Can Do was a real reflection of his commitment to contributing engineering services on behalf of the rights that all humans possess. So James, welcome to the show. We are super grateful to have you here. Um, I look forward to getting to know you a little bit more today. Thank you, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be with you. All right. So for those of you who are just listening in, you have to watch James because he is looking very smart with his very fancy hat. I won't tell you too much, but it's worth logging into the YouTube channel to have a look. So James, I know we did talk about your ripe old age, but I do want to know about you, the little boy who would later become an engineer. And I'm curious, like, were you always the curious type about how things worked? And did you try to solve the world's problems even as a little boy? Well, yes and no. <laughs> uh, I, I wasn't solving the world's problems. I was probably sorting, trying to solve problems with my sister and family more than that. But I was always curious about how things work. I was into Meccano building models, you know, the predecessor of Lego. And uh, then I progressed even to building things like a, a blast furnace, uh, melting steel in the backyard, much to my mother's horror. At what age did you do that? I think I was I probably at university by then. Uh, so okay. I was into building I was into building telescopes and I needed to make parts for my telescopes so I thought well I can melt aluminium I can melt iron and so I did. Of course you did. And yeah, do you recall like you know I'm I'm curious I have a 5 year old so I'm I'm curious as a parent but also as a person what has someone like you believe that oh, I can do that and I can do that, so I'm going to. Whereas other people get intimidated, try to ask somebody else to do it. What do you, a little self-reflection here. What do you think it was inside of you that had you just go for it? Well, I guess it started with curiosity. I, I, I used to read books. And so my love of telescopes and astronomy started on a holiday when I was given a book about amateur astronomy. And in the book, it explained how you could make your own telescope, a huge telescope, and so I thought, gee, that looks fun. But I think for me, it was actually building the telescope was more part of the fun and making, I must say, terrible messes in, in our kitchen mm -hmm. uh, at the time because I was making the mirrors myself, you know, grinding the and polishing the mirrors and the lenses all by hand. And uh, that was that was quite a project, but you know it was intensely rewarding to get these magnificent views of the moon and the planets in my own oh. back backyard. So, but it was always probably the building more and the making more than the looking through the telescope that was attractive to me. So I kept on building bigger telescopes, and then then I had to work for a living. I didn't have as much time as I, when I was a student. <laughs> Just because you're talking planets, and you might have just said the answer there with you, you really enjoyed the process of making things. But when you hear about um, like Elon Musk or people that really want to go into space and, and kind of supersede what's already been done, is that something that you feel that you've always wanted to do in, in the environment that you're in? Did you, have you always wanted to go further than, than people have gone before? No, no, no. Really, I, I thought we have to focus on issues on our own planet first. Um, so, yeah, it's fun to look outside. You know, you need to uh, – it, it's really important, I think, to be – 
to understand that we're just a tiny little dot in this universe. Mm. There is so much out there, yes, but you know, let's get let's, let's get things sorted out on this planet first before we mm. go and muck up any more. Well said. So here you are, you know, at the University of Western Australia, and what steers you toward sheep shearing robotics? I mean, oh, good come question. On. Good question. Well, at first, when I first heard about the idea from the person who'd been my professor, uh, David Allen Williams, that farmers wanted to build sheep shearing robots, I said, you've got to be joking. I mean, robots on farms, shearing sheep. Hmm. And then I learned how much farmers pay for the machinery used for harvesting wheat or other crops. You know, and it's not, it wouldn't be unusual to find a farm with a million dollars worth of machinery that only gets used for a couple of weeks a year. And I thought, oh, that's a lot of money. Maybe they could afford a robot. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, it's a good challenge. And uh, at, at first it was, it was, you know, I was still skeptical, but then I realized, okay, yeah, I think it could be done. And I never really questioned that. You know, I had this idea in my head about how you would do it, and it took a while to get a robot which really did what I wanted it to do. Mm. And then we had the wool coming off sheep. It was great fun, and I have to I have to say I'm immensely grateful for so many Australian farmers who, through their representatives, had the confidence in us to to make a go of it. And so you intrigue me because you don't just do the research and create the thing. It seems to me that you have a practical side to you where that robot gets in the hand of the farmer. You know, you seem to have this kind of, you don't just leave it at the research and that kind of fulfilling feeling of, I created the robot. I, okay. I'm a how person as well. I do hows for, for human behavior. Okay, James. So yes. that's my how. Um, what has you not just end on the research and actually take that next step and actually have it be in farms? Well, you know, I look at it again. I think I owe this to my professor who taught me, David Allen, Allen Williams. He said engineering is really all about people and money and machines and systems, you know, and it's money in the end that drives it. You know, somebody puts up that money and, and ultimately as engineers, it's our job to provide something in return. And so it's all about engineering is really about, first of all, creating the confidence among the people who have the money and the resources that we will actually produce something useful and then delivering on that promise. So, yeah, it's very much always been in my mind that, you know, delivering value at the end is a crucial part of it. But it took decades before I really understood that. Yeah, uh, but that's another part of the story. And it is because, and we will get to, I want to, talk about your TED talk after, because I felt that that's what you were really driving there is the need as well. You were talking about the finances and, and, and what people were spending and the cost. You kept saying the cost, and it's not always a financial cost. Yeah. And um, there's another thing. There's another thing, Sarah, you know, I, I, I used to tell students, you know, engineering is so much more fun when you spend other people's money. <laughs> well said. And uh, as engineers, you get to spend lots of it. That's why engineering is such a fabulous occupation. Uh, but in the end, you do actually have to produce something. You know, you can't just walk away and leave a hole in the ground. Well, sometimes that does happen, but hopefully not too often. That's awesome. Um, I should have stayed in engineering. Maybe if you were my professor, I would have stayed a bit longer. Um, the brain drew me, drew me out. But um, 
what exposed you to some of the world's fundamental problems, such as, um, you know, water and plumbing and toilets and heat? Like, tell me a little bit about travel, because I sense that you didn't just park yourself in Perth your whole life. No, no. Uh, I'm married to a, a gorgeous woman from Pakistan, oh. uh, Samina, and uh, we would go there regularly. Got it. And... Uh, as I said, at first I got involved in landmine clearance because there were quite a few Australians, New Zealanders, Canadians based in Islamabad where the family home is. And they were working on demining in Afghanistan, demining the process of removing landmines. And it wasn't long before I realized that we could make, make a contribution there. I must say that, again, I owe that to my wife because she, she twisted my arm and pushed me into this issue because of her involvement with the Red Cross. And the Red Cross was stumbling against issues of landmines, in which was impeding aid delivery in many, many countries. And when I said, look, don't be ridiculous, robots have no place in minefields, uh, she wasn't deterred at all. She simply got the, the, uh, the chief of the army, General Sanderson at the time, and he twisted the other arm. So I had very little choice. Oh, and so... Uh, and I found that we could make a contribution because we were able to work with uh, Afghan D-miners in, in Pakistan. So the Afghan D-miners at that time were based in Pakistan uh, and uh, we were employing people who spoke the same language so we could understand some of the issues from their point of view. And that was, that was a major contribution because the expatriates who were there were military people, didn't know the language, and really didn't have access to that kind of insight. Mm. So, so let me give you an example. One of the issues was that there were a lot of injuries happening because the D-miners would do their work squatting. I don't know whether you or your listeners might remember that movie, The English Patient. Yep. And in the opening scenes, you actually see demining being done. You know, it's not too different today. Um, there's a little bit of better instrumentation, but I'll, but. You know, the, the fellow is supposed to lie on the ground and use a bayonet to poke at this thing underground, which may explode. And the whole idea of lying on the ground is so that if it does go off, the blast goes up. And, and so you avoid the worst, worst of the effects of the blast. It's only a small blast, but if you cop it in the face, it can be really bad. Mm. So the question was, why would, why would these guys squat? You know, why wouldn't they lie down? And there was some idea, maybe it's a religious belief. Maybe they don't want to expose their backs, you know, to a potential enemy or something like that. Uh, when we actually talked with the D-miners, they put it in such simple terms. They said, look, here we are. We have these great uniforms. We're really proud of our uniforms because they put set us apart from the rest of the population. And we don't want to lie on the ground in our uniforms because they'll get dirty. So they were more, no more happy about lying on the ground in their uniforms than a businessman would be happy lying on the ground in his suit. Wow. And then they, they said, well, look, you lie on the ground, you get hot, you get all these ants crawling all over you, you get these prickles. So, and we squat for everything. We squat to eat. Uh, you know, we squat and talk to each other. That's our national tradition. So... It seemed much more sensible to say, okay, how do we protect them from mind blasts when they're squatting? Which we did. We worked on that. Okay, so what I hear in that story um, is so interesting around culture because I hear that you were able to kind of transcend that divide which had 
let's say you looking at it from a Western point of view or maybe an expatriate point of view and, and actually ask from their perspective what's going on. Does that ability come from being with your wife? You know, that, well, that transcendent. She is, yeah. yeah. She's a social science researcher. So naturally I picked okay. up a great deal from her. And I did learn formal social science research techniques. But yes, it was all about understanding the culture too. And, you know, sometimes these days she says, you know more about Pakistan culture than I do. Well, you know, okay. that that sometimes happens because as an outsider, you you pick up things that are unique to the culture more readily than someone who's immersed in it all the time. Sure. So, yes, we, we help each other. Yeah, okay. Thank you for that bridge because... I feel that that's such an important, I didn't actually catch that in, in knowing about you. So that just explains so much. Um, and I think it's a piece that we miss sometimes, you know, wanting to rush in with our way and our perspectives to help someone. And we never even ask the person, um, what is it like for them? So thank you for that. that. That just changed everything. So there's so many issues, James, like as you navigate life, I'm sure you see, you know, issues all around in terms of um, world problems. How do you choose what gets your attention? That's a good question. Um, well, in the case of landmines, I was pushed into it. That's right. Two arms. I had my arms right. twisted. twisted. You did but then, then world events took over. We, we had a study planned on mine detection dogs, you know, the dogs that sniff explosives and so on. And it turned out, that they were not succeeding in doing that in Bosnia for some reason. We weren't quite sure why. Uh, so with the uh, UN uh, International Center for Humanitarian Demining in Geneva in Switzerland, we worked out uh, a program of research to understand how the dogs were behaving. And, and I must, must say, I was fortunate in coming across a wonderful dog trainer here in Australia, originally a Kiwi, who was actually training dogs not to, uh, sorry, training, yeah, he was actually training uh, endangered animals not to smile at dingoes. Mm -hmm. You see, these animals were reared in reserves where there were no dingoes or predators. And so before they were released into the wild, they had to be taught that something like a dingo is potentially life-threatening. Mm -hmm. So he would train dogs to attack these animals, but not kill them oh, wow. against their instincts. He was amazing. Huh. And so wow. this is all about teaching these little animals not to smile at dingoes, right? In other words, I won't even <laughs> ask how dangerous. you found that guy, but that's another, I'm sure that's another story. Yeah, well, he was associated with the university where I was teaching. Okay. So uh, anyway, he and, and a colleague from Germany were literally on their way to Afghanistan to conduct this study when the towers came down in New York. Yeah, right. And so Afghanistan then became a US military target. And of course, all that had to be abandoned. And the deminers that we'd been working with eventually shifted into Afghanistan. They were then based there, they had to be. And because of the, uh, because of the law and order situation subsequently, they were much more concerned about not being kidnapped and not having their gear stolen. So they really weren't interested in finding better ways to clear minds at that time. So we shifted our attention to what was going on around us in Islamabad. And we were supporting these schools. And I was amazed to find out that water was such an issue. Mm. 
you know, my mother-in-law, she'd been working with uh, people in villages for decades, and even she didn't really fully appreciate this. Yeah. Uh, we, we set up a sewing school in, in a village not far from Islamabad, which is now, of course, a suburb, but at the time it was a village just outside. And we went back after a year. I went with her, and we found that the sewing machines that we had provided had not been touched. The covers were on the machines, and the, the dust on the covers told you that those covers had not been moved in a year. So she sat down and talked with the women there. And, you know, thinking originally that it was the men that were told, telling them, no, do the cooking, look after the kids, do the weeding, do this, do that, and, you know, and not allowing them anywhere near the sewing machines. It was none of that. Mm. Those women were spending most of their day carting water. There was actually a water supply pipe to the village. You know, it was a public uh, water outlet where you turned on the tap and filled your buckets or whatever, but no water ever came out. Hmm. And so the first priority was to say, well, okay, if these women are carrying water for eight hours a day, have you ever tried to carry 20 litres of water in two buckets, one on either side? No, or 10 well, liters on they do head. these crazy things at work. Out, it is so back-breaking work. Yeah, that's just unbelievable. You know, people, you, you, you need about 10 liters per person per day. Wow. That's a small bucket. And a typical family of six plus a couple of animals. You know, you've got to carry 80 to 100 kilos of water a day, wow. right, just to survive. And, and typically they'd, the they'd, be walking, they'd be walking a kilometer or so and then carrying that water back. That was backbreaking work. So, of course, they had no energy left for sewing. So the next step was to install water pumps. And then the, the second revelation was we had been doing this probably for about three or four years now, installing water pumps in villages and schools. Like one school, the name of the school was Cool Water. And, no, no Pani. and there was this pipe outside, which was supposed to bring water to the school, but no water ever came. And this was 20 kilometers from the seat of government in, in Islamabad. You know, well, it took a while to understand that. But, but as I said, you know, by that stage, I knew enough of the language to have a conversation. And this, this family insisted at this village that I come in and see the water pump they had installed for themselves. And so they proudly showed me this pump, hand pump, which had cost them four and a half thousand Australian dollars because they had to drill down through hard rock and they had to get a contractor to do that. My father-in-law said, oh, it doesn't cost that much. They were ripped off. I said, yeah, because probably some relatives had lent them the money and had said, oh, we know somebody who will do the work and it actually charged them more than, more than it actually cost. But never mind, why were they prepared to pay that kind of money? Mm. And that was when I learned about what's called in technical terms, the shadow price cost of unpaid labor, mm -hmm. which is a term that economists use to put a value on that unpaid labor that women and children do in so many countries around the world. I mean, you know, actually, when you sit in your car in a traffic jam in Australia, mm -hmm. your time is valued by the same formula by economists who decide whether or not it's worth building a freeway or a bridge or a tunnel or something like that. So this is a very well-known concept. And when I applied that concept, I was horrified because the cost of that water that the women were carrying, the real cost to them, 
was 20 to 30 times what we pay for water in Australia. Right. In cash terms. Wow. Think of that. In relative to their relative to the pay that they would get, it was enormous. You're talking about, you know, their full earning capacity being used to carry water. Carry water. And so if you would imagine water costing a thousand dollars a liter, no, no, that's too much. A thousand dollars for a thousand liters, a dollar a liter. Yeah. Imagine what your life would be like. All right, 50 liters for a small, a short shower will cost you $50. Yeah, good comparison. Right? Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, why is this happening? Why is the, you know, pipe, pipes, valves, dams, these are the things that make a water system work. Why are the un engineers there unable to make this water system work? Yeah, that's what my question. I was like, but yeah. why is this not a priority then? So I started to, because I was there, I could talk to the engineers. I was employing engineers and they were, they'd made my hair grow gray with frustration because for some reason they wouldn't, it was really hard to get them to produce practical results. And mean, what did know, that mean? No, they would just talk about the, the idea, but they couldn't actually build the thing? Well, like, for example, uh, one engineer produced a testing machine. Remember, we were working with uh, safety equipment for the D-miners. So we needed a machine, which was basically a big drop testing unit. So it was uh, a couple of tubes running up and down the stairwell, and you pulled a big weight up to the top and then let it go, and it would come down, bang, on a piece of, uh, of uh, polycarbonate visor material. You know the visor, the face visor? Yes. And we'd see if it would punch a hole in the visor. Well, we, we tried it out and the weight got stuck halfway down because the tubes were misaligned. Ah, practice. okay. And the engineer was so embarrassed he resigned on the spot. Oh. Because it had never occurred to him to actually test it. Right. You know, before I arrived to inspect the results. <laughs> I'd sketched what I wanted. Uh, and, and you know, this this engineer didn't even conceive of the necessity to test the machine to make sure it worked properly before I got there. And I was thinking, what's going on here? And then my wife facetiously said, well, they're just, you know, these people are just taking revenge on you because your forefathers were their colonists. <laughs> was that true? No. <laughs> I mean, actually, yes, my, my family were involved in the Indian Raj. Mm -hmm. uh, and but that's a long story but <laughs> but the let's let's keep to the keep to the subject yeah. so i realized yeah. eventually that pretty much every engineering organization in pakistan and india had the same issues mm. that is for some reason the engineers were really struggling to produce practical results right that i could take for granted from engineers whom i employed for many years in australia so i thought wow here's a really intriguing question and I thought, well, if I just observe these engineers, talk to them, get some, you know, use social science research methods, understand their views, their attitudes, how they think, I can go back to Australia and look up all the knowledge that we have about engineers around the world and make a comparison and then identify the reasons. Hmm. And then I discovered a major snag. What? The snag was that that data didn't exist. It was really fascinating. It seemed like no one had actually asked the question, what do engineers really do <laughs> at all? 
there have been lots of studies done on engineers, but the studies were typically done by management researchers trying to understand how teams work. Mm. Uh, or there's another famous study done by, you know, one of the most famous people that everybody in the management school will probably immediately recognize, Henry Mintzberg, who studied, said, what do CEOs do? You know, what do CEOs of major corporations do? It was probably 20 or 30 years later that he actually confessed. He said, all these people are engineers, but it never occurred to me to ask what are they doing as engineers? I was only interested in what they were doing as CEOs. Right. So uh, we uncovered a handful of studies, but it was really quite interesting that there was this enormous gap in something so obvious. Mm. So, you know, as being employed as a researcher, here was a gold mine, mm. you know, a simple question, obvious question that nobody had answered. But then, of course, came the really challenging part. And that was this. Here I was in an engineering school teaching engineering, right? Yeah. And you sort of say, well, how come you're teaching engineering when we don't really know what engineers do? Well, I had worked as an engineer in private companies, and I always knew that what I was teaching was not really what those students were going to be doing as engineers. But, well, it's on the curriculum. I, it has to be taught. You know, I just accepted that. So gradually, as I uncovered more and more about what engineers really do, then, of course, it became more obvious that the way we teach engineers, more than what we teach, it is the way we teach mm. that actually means that they acquire values, assumptions, and notions about engineering, which are completely at odds with what actually happens in real engineering workplaces. Right. And so have you been so, able to change that? No. Oh, sorry. No. <laughs> Don't ask. Okay. No. But oh. basically, where does it get us? It, it First of all, it explains why engineers in countries like India and Pakistan have so much trouble. Mm -hmm. You know, we take it for granted that people will cooperate and work together and share information. And this is what happens in engineering in countries like Australia, America, and so on. Not as much as we would like. Like some companies have really complicated procedures to force engineers to talk to each other. Mm. Um, but it's so much harder in a culture like you would find in South Asia. And the, these cultural patterns seem to be present in every low-income country that I've visited, you know, even in China. So let me tell you a little, like a little anecdote. Yes. And this was observed by one of my graduate students. So we have an engineer standing beside the road and he has a gang of fellows with shovels and picks and he has a map in his hand and he's on the map. It shows that there's a water pipe under the road at that point and he suspects that this pipe is leaking. So he explains to these people, I want you to dig up the pipe. So they set to work with picks and shovels and they start digging. And of course, during the day, the engineer gets phone calls because the engineer's mobile phone number is known to everybody in the district, right? So he gets pestered with phone calls from all the residents saying, why are you digging up our road? When's it going to be fixed? So he has to patiently explain and then goes back late in the afternoon to see what's, you know, have a look at the pipe that's been exposed only to find that there's no pipe. Oh. There's a big okay. hole in the road and no pipe. Got it. 
they took the now the fellows who did the digging the fellows who did the digging knew that the pipe wasn't there because they had been bribed to put the pipe in in a different location by some wealthy person who wanted a private water connection but it wasn't up to them to tell the engineer that he was wrong in fact if he if they suggested the engineer was was uh you know didn't know his job and you know yeah. said you know tell them that well the pipes over there you idiot they would have lost their jobs immediately so they're too scared you see now put that situation in the australian context hmm. you have an engineer standing beside the road with a map and this time there's only one fellow who turns up but he's got a digging machine and he gets his digging machine off the back of that the truck and, and gets it ready. You see, and the engineer says, well, we've got to expose the pipe. It's down under the road here. And the guy says, oh, here's another bloody idiot engineer who doesn't know his stuff. Mate, I know the pipe is over there because I installed it. And he'd get away with it, you see. The engineer would sort of say, oh, okay. Well, why don't you dig a small hole and prove to me that the pipe is really there? <laughs> so do you see that's the cultural yes. difference? Now. There's so, many, sorry, there's so many layers about this story that it's such a good analogy. Keep going. I just in, in, in engineering school, uh, there is a what we call a hidden hidden curriculum or a hidden agenda. So we assess students as you would have been assessed in exams, and we reward students with grades for individual performances where they write something. So when they graduate. They actually think that collaboration is a form of cheating. Got it, because they're but engineering. Rewarded. Engineering relies on collaboration. collaboration. So first of all, we don't teach them to collaborate. We actually in we inadvertently teach the opposite. opposite. And secondly, secondly, of course, in a country like India or Pakistan, getting collaboration is so much more complicated and difficult than it is in a country like Australia. So these are the challenges that we face. And if we can solve these challenges, mm. you know, the, the difficulties in, in countries like India, Pakistan, even in China, is that everything is actually more expensive than it is here in Australia. It's mm. very hard to believe that. But to get something of the same standard, the same durability, the same quality, the same reliability, generally costs more. There are exceptions, of course. Uh, so... That's why you find that productivity in these countries is so far behind productivity in Australia, America, Europe, and so on. So the layers, that's like my mind, because I come from a different area. So I come from collaboration teaching, let's say. Yeah. So my area, maybe even your wife's area would be quite interesting to intersect here. And you just think, why aren't we cross-pollinating a little bit some of the genres because whereas one area is teaching let's say communication skills or collaborative skills to, to me there's a culture question but even in the Australian yeah. dynamic I would say there's also issues with pride and like like collaboration is not an easy thing even in Australia and then I'm hearing from a cultural perspective like when that guy quit on the spot because he was so ashamed or embarrassed that his prototype didn't work, um, I just see how strong, like, looking good and pride is 
Face, yes. Saving face. Saving face, saving face, yes. Look, even in the Australian context, we have some real issues here. I've studied engineers, so I can't generalize to other occupations. Mm -hmm. But definitely here in Australia, I suspect that we have several layers of issues around collaboration because we use exams as a method of assessing not just engineering students, you know, all university students. And, and I see now this pattern emerging, which is compounded by the temptation to use text as a communication tool. So, you know, we learned in the 1950s uh, and through the, you know, psychological research that if you rely on text communication, trust evaporates very quickly. Uh, and although there are ways to build trust, but it's much, much weaker than face-to-face -face contact. And the pattern that I've seen amongst young engineers is that they resort first to email. Mm -hmm. They will email someone because they're maybe too shy about going to ask face-to-face. -face. Mm. And then they get frustrated because their email doesn't get answered. Mm. You know, they've just started their job in their job. Maybe they've got three emails and they're thinking, why haven't these other people you know, bother to even answer the email that I've sent. And that it's not to a few years later, they realize after you've been in the place for a few years, you get two or 300 emails a day. Yeah. And then they become <laughs> the ones that don't answer either. Hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so, uh, you know, I had a, I was, tr you know, I was, I, I've written a new book called learning engineering practice. And I was trying out some of the material in the book with a, with a, a student, uh, a year or two ago. And he came to back to me and he said, you know, I can't believe it. I actually got a job straight away because I followed your advice. I went to ask. Mm -hmm. I said, what sort of a job have you got? He said, oh, well, I'm running a shutdown on a mine somewhere out from Port Hedland. Mm -hmm. I said, that's a job they give a senior engineer. He said, yeah, I was a bit shocked. I said, but, you know, now that I go and talk to people, it's I get so much more done even though I'm the most junior engineer in the organization because I go and ask people and they help me, you know, and yeah. that's, that's been lost for so many young people, that ability to go and ask and get help from people. And I feel like if that to me then indicates that would be such a point of difference because it's not common, just that person, that young person doing something that nobody's doing allowed him to rise above. Um, wow, th th it's really interesting to hear all of those conclusions and just how you've really kind of tackled into a problem. And so when I'm thinking about where you are in your career, where you are with your age, what would you say is, and maybe you don't have an overall legacy, but what's the thing that if you could just leave that behind, you would feel like my work here is done? <laughs> Well, our personal air conditioners for a start. Okay. Why that? Though? I mean, why my that, engineering why? research. My engineering research, of course, because that's published in books. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the, the personal air conditioning technology that we've developed. Well, when you live in a country like Pakistan and you realize that, you know, most of the people don't get a good sleep for months at a time. Mm. All right. I'm talking about, we're talking about productivity, right? What are the things that really hold development back, economic and social development back in countries like India and Pakistan is low productivity. People take much more time and effort to produce the goods that you take for granted. Mm. 
And part of that is because they don't sleep for months at a time. You know, when the temperature is 40 degrees indoors, and that's the kind of conditions that people are putting up with, 40 degrees, mind you, indoor temperature at night, mm. at two or three o'clock in the morning, how can anyone sleep under those conditions? So that's been my dream is to say, well, you know, we need a way to provide cooling. Now we have a warming climate. These kinds of temperatures are being experienced by more and more people every year. This is becoming a survival issue. But the traditional form of air conditioning that we've got used to in the last century won't cut it. It literally is heating the planet. Uh, and so we have to find an alternative way, much more energy efficient and a solution which doesn't result in heating the climate still further. So, mm. you know, I didn't have this vision when I started producing these little machines. For me, it was a curiosity exercise. The power went off in the middle of the night. There I was lying in bed, two or three o'clock in the morning, total darkness, no air conditioner, and, and listening to the mosquitoes lining up, right? I said... There has to be a better way to keep cool and it has to work on a battery power supply because pretty much every house has these battery backup power supplies that were originally brought in so that you didn't lose your work on the computer and you didn't miss out on the last half an hour of the drama series that was on TV before you went to bed. So you could catch up with the conversation at work the next day. So, uh, yeah, and, and so that limited the power consumption to about 300 watts you know, in, in a few light bulbs. And so it was a curiosity project. Could you actually build an air conditioner? And when I took it to Pakistan after so many years of frustrations and experiments and trials, people were just over the moon. They said, oh my goodness me, that is amazing. Yeah. And, you know, until then, as I said, it was purely a technical uh, curiosity. Mm. And they asked, how much would it cost? And I had no idea. I hadn't even thought about that, mm. how you get it made and all that sort of thing. So I said, how much would you pay for it? And the answer was, oh, three or 400 US dollars. And that blew me away. I thought, wow, maybe there's a business in that. Good on you. So that was, if you like, the moment at which I became a young and very inexperienced entrepreneur. Love it. Love it. So it was like a transformation. It was just the light went on at that moment. Yeah. And, and so you, then it was yeah. a question of how would we do it and so on. So now we know we can do it. People love the product. It, we've sold it in Australia, Pakistan, Indonesia, Singapore. So it's a question of growing that and overcoming that natural resistance to change and yeah. seeing that, you know, we can do things a different way. Yeah. And it's so much easier, simpler, more sustainable, greener, and it's a wonderful future. So that, that I think, I, I would say yes. That's a legacy which I'm proud of. Love it. And I love how it's a, um, in, in, the, in the moment, something happened that, you're curio that piqued your curiosity and then you just kept following the trend. And like you said, we have a warming planet. And I just want to share with the listeners that you um, contributed a, one of your units to a very hot place in Queensland called Kingaroy and it was part of an Indigenous cultural project but it's really interesting the place as you were sharing the benefits of what it does I, I thought about this place that you contributed to and it's pregnancy and early parenting support and I thought about how 
you know, these women go in there at, you know, 41 degree temperatures and hot and pregnant. I know you've never been pregnant, James, but it makes you even hotter. And so I just I do know that. I yeah. definitely do know that. Yes, my my uh, in my first marriage, yes, we had three kids and two of them appeared. Well, my wife was pregnant through the summer months. Right? With all of them. Hot. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You got I this little thought, heater in your belly. That's it. That's it and it's just really beautiful like just your willingness to do that, but also how relevant it is and how it can make a real difference in in that's just one little little example and like i know that you're thinking more countries and cities but i just wanted the listeners to know that those are the kind of things that you do on a regular basis and we feel really honored to have you on the show because what you shared have just sparked so much curiosity in me about how we can start to um link arms a little bit better in terms of skill sets because i think there's something to be said about um communication and collaboration skills being moved into the engineering space in particular and how much that would do the world good. Yeah. So, but it, it's challenging. It is difficult. It is challenging. And, and uh, so, yeah, that's my dream. I'd love, I'd love engineering to be transformed by this because I think then we really can transform life for so many people on this planet. Well, James, I just love that you said the word dream because that, that little boy that was frustrating his mother in the kitchen who's now – out there, you know, having meetings in Switzerland and in Pakistan and, and just just really asking people, what is this like for you and solving real life problems? I, I feel that you're the kind of people we need to get behind. So thank you so much for sharing what you've been up to. That's a pleasure, Sarah. Lovely to talk to you too. We so appreciate you listening to the show. Don't forget to join the community on Facebook by searching In The Game Podcast. There you can download your three-step journal and participate in our weekly live video chats. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You've got to rate and review the show. And I know all the podcasts are always asking this. And in the past, I wasn't doing it. And the reason I wasn't doing it is because I actually didn't know how to do it. So... Open your podcast player and click on our show from your library, not the listen now. That's where I was going wrong in the past. So now that you know how to do it, when you go there, make sure you give us a five-star review. Five stars, five stars, five stars. And then click on write a review link to actually write a review so that you can tell other people that we're legit and even funny, maybe a bit serious. So if you want to recommend this to someone, you have to... Put your fingers on the keys and send us a review.